0: Oxford University Press provides a wide range of resources so that you have everything you need to support your teaching of geography. Student books and digital resources on Caboodle blend expertly, helping you to create a coherent curriculum and connect learning in school and at home. Accessible and exciting courses range from Key Stage 3 through to A Level and include schemes of work and built-in assessment to save you time. Meanwhile, Our best-selling revision guides and workbooks support students to consolidate learning throughout the year. Visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash geography to find out more.
1: Hello, welcome to JobPot. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Tony Champion, who's Emeritus Professor of Population Geography at Newcastle University. So Tony, four decades of research experience at Newcastle University, it's no wonder you've co-authored or authored so many books, papers and reports in a really long and distinguished career. Uh, I read that you acted as advisor to the UN Population Division, the International Union of the Scientific Study of Population and the UK government, as well as a number of key committees. So I'm in I'm exalted company here today. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, I feel greatly honored to be invited to be part of your podcast series alongside so many distinguished geographers. Uh, it's good that you're including population geography in your series and uh, especially having this emphasis on, uh, on migration and residential mobility and shifting population distributions. Well,
1: I checked because there's so much of your work that's relevant to the new geography A-level specifications. I had a look in particular at AQA this time because they look at contemporary urban environments and they look at urban change and deindustrialization and decentralisation. But all of the specs cover aspects related to UK urban and rural communities. So whatever A-level student you are, you will be dealing with aspects of what we're going to talk about today. I wondered if we might start just by exploring aspects of counter-urbanisation to begin with and, and urban rural migration. It, it seems to become very topical again, think, especially with the pandemic and home homeworking um, and, and these regional lockdowns, which here in South Yorkshire we've just gone into again. So I want to avoid COVID for now because it's a bit of a touchy subject here, <laughs> but just go for a quick stroll through r- recent, I, I call it historical geography, but it's it's the geography of both of us because I was, I've been teaching for 10 years by the time your book on counter-urbanisation in 1989 came out. You've been researching this over the last 30 years. So really it's a, it's a chatter in, across our history. So I'd like, to, I'd like to ask you three complicated questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. First of all, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to ask you what is counter-urbanisation and, and what are the causes? <laughs> and if we're, if we're not careful, this could be the whole of the podcast. The third one is, what are the key changes that you've seen since that, uh, since the book in 1989?
2: Three very uh, important <laughs> questions, I think. <laughs> um, I have a long answer and a short answer. Um, the short one is very short, so I'll expand on it uh, in a minute. Um, basically, what is counter-urbanisation? It's uh, meant to be defined as population redistribution down the urban hierarchy. Um, And it's not just migration from urban to rural areas. That's only one element of the whole package of counter urbanization. That's the short answer. (laughs) Now, um, so uh, in my longer answer, in general terms, uh, counter urbanization is a population shift down the urban hierarchy from larger cities to smaller towns cities and towns and into rural areas so it does get to rural areas in the end but it's a broader process and as such it's the opposite of urbanization if you think back to all the work on urbanization and uh, still going on in the third world of course uh, that's where a nation's population distribution is shifting up the settlement hierarchy and becoming more concentrated in larger places so in that context, there's a positive relationship between the size of a place and the gross rate of a place. Whereas with counter-urbanization, it's a negative relationship. Uh, the smaller the place, the stronger its relative gross rate. Um, so that's the, uh, the basic definition. But there are two further points. Now, in theory, at least, it's not the same as suburbanization. Um, that is normally defined as decentralization within a city region or a local labor market area. Um, whereas uh, counter-urbanization is deconcentration uh, where people and population are shifting to separate labor market areas. So uh, they they are not meant to be commuting back into the city in the way that suburbanites might be considered moving uh, commuting back into the city centre for work. Um, and secondly, it's not meant to be confused with counter urbanizers, the people, the individual people. You can still have counter even when there's no counter-urbanisation shift of population. People uh, back to the land movement, uh, retirement migration, Uh, We'll be carrying on individuals moving uh, in a counter-urban direction, but uh, that may not be big enough to actually uh, offset the effect of urbanization forces of people moving up the urban hierarchy uh, in the opposite direction. So uh, you can have both at the same time, but uh, you can have have counter-urbanization happening when there is still urbanization occurring. Um, obviously, in a state of counter-urbanisation, where you've got uh, population shift into uh, uh, smaller settlements and rural areas, the counter urbanizers are dominating in that, in, that, in that picture. Your second question.
1: Well, before that, I, I think I should say, I read, I read Mitchell's statement in 2004 where he said the usage of the term counter-urbanisation has been far from consistent. I think you've just cleared up all those consistencies. I think that
2: was really clear. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the uh, 1989 book, but uh, in the final chapter, we listed 17 causes altogether. Uh, So I won't go through them all. Uh, But obviously, these were the causes that were particularly relevant for the 1970s and the early 1980s, for which the book was mainly uh, about. Um, So... The sort of key ones that uh, I've uh, drawn out of these, well, first of all, back to the land uh, movement, uh, people sort of just uh, getting off, uh, was flat on the age of flower power, but moving out into the countryside for a quieter life and setting up communes and things like that, um, which was helped by the fact that uh, things like unemployment benefits uh, uh, could be taken anywhere; they were portable. If someone moved, they could register for unemployment uh, nationally in a different place and still get their money, but have very cheap living costs in d- deep countryside.
1: I suppose that's they, almost like the good life. Do you remember the TV program, The Good Life?
2: Uh, yeah, yes. Well, <laughs> well that, they I didn't had the point. impression that was actually suburban. But, I was uh, going to say they uh, didn't really move; <laughs> they pretended. Interesting point, actually. You could have counter-urbanisers moving to the suburbs uh, and settling there perhaps even getting local work there and not commuting back into the central city and city center. Uh, so they, they could they could be considered counter even if they were living in what we normally think of as a suburban environment. But I won't count these out, uh, but uh, growth of retirement migration, that was very strong through the uh, 60s, increasing 70s and 80s. Um, and that was a, a big boost to uh, counter-urbanization. But the main period of counter-urbanization, the main component, was when uh, working-age people started adopting mi- retirement migration uh, patterns and moving out of cities into m- smaller towns and rural areas. Other boosts to job growth in rural areas, um, these were growing during this period of 70s and 80s, uh, growth of tourism, uh, increases in mining as we were getting short of uh, minerals and various sorts at that time, uh, quite a lot of defense spending in rural areas. And in America, they set up lots of prisons in the 1970s uh, in rural areas. Uh, So that that all all contributed to uh, uh, a a jobs boost in rural areas. Restructuring of manufacturing industry was another one. Uh, This was the time of the new spatial division of labor, as it came called. And the key thing for rural areas and smaller towns was uh, hiving off of production activities into branch plants separate from the headquarters of these firms. And uh, the rural areas and smaller towns with uh, limited union, trade union membership were the ideal places for this, particularly as agriculture was shedding labor. And there was uh, uh, a lot of cheap, pliable labor in these areas. Branch plants were taking set up by these firms in the 70s, particularly. improvements in transport technology, highway building, uh, particularly in America, again, big boost all through the 50s and 60s, which had knock-on effects in the 70s. Improvements in other um, rural region infrastructure, health, and so on in rural areas uh, over this period. Spatial policies support farming and other rural activities, government subsidies, and so on. Change in residential preferences, I guess I've mentioned that, uh, but it includes self-employment as well. Uh, so there was a strong increase in self-employment, and uh, these are the sort of people that can work from home um, and would only want to go and meet uh, uh, their, uh, their clients sort of uh, once a week or once a fortnight and have the trip to, to town, as it were. Uh, now, the big, the big one I haven't mentioned, of course, is at the other end of the spectrum, urban problems. Uh, The 70s were following the 60s, where a lot of American cities went bankrupt uh, because people were leaving them and uh, leaving behind the uh, lower income people, which uh, needed to be supported and have more services, congestion, cost of living, crime, a lot of social issues. And in America, at least, perhaps not so much in this country, white flight out of these areas, which have become very uh, many of the inner city areas of American cities. Have become very black uh, from the move of uh, of people from the south, southern states into the north and northeast uh, states. It always had a cumulative effect. Once you got, uh, it was a Ravenstein, who were uh, the first real migrationist, studying the uh, censuses of England and Britain in the uh, 1970, 1871, 1881 uh, censuses, that got hold of the idea that uh, Migration is a cumulative process. It builds on itself. Once some people start, other people follow, and it sort of builds on itself until you get to a point where uh, things shut down because it gets over-congested at the destination or whatever. So uh, uh, in cities, jobs, schools, health, other services uh, were were disappearing in cities, and uh, they were being built in in the countryside and smaller towns and cities. So uh, That's a a brief canter through the list for the 70s and the 80s, causes of counter-urbanisation.
1: You used a term earlier called counter-urbanisation cascade in some of your writing. You've not mentioned it yet, but I wasn't quite sure I understood what what that meant.
2: Well, it was just to sort of uh, provide an image of what's going on. And in a sense, two alternative uh, explanations of how migration causes the movement of population down the urban hierarchy. Um, is it a sort of cascade? As I'm, in a sense, talking about down the urban area, you can imagine a cascade which has uh, water, uh, has several levels in it, and has water coming out of the top. And when the, uh, the tray at the top uh, fills, it spills over to the next level down and then spills over right to the bottom, and then the water's taken away at the end. Um, is that the way that counter-urbanization worked with individual people? Did they just move, most people just move to the next level of the uh, down of the urban hierarchy from large city to small city and then small city to uh, other people moving from small city to towns? Or uh, the other analogy was um, uh, a volcano or a fountain where everything is thrown up in the air from the center and then lands uh, all over the place as it comes down not just the next level down. And the research that we did uh, showed that both were happening. Uh, There were quite strong links between uh, the adjacent levels of the uh, urban hierarchy going down, but there were also people moving directly from the large city to rural areas at the other end and places in between.
1: You've got a couple of of diagrams, haven't you, that clearly show this in in the work that you've done. So we can put the links to those so that as you're describing this now, Teachers can be looking at the diagrams. I think they're, they're a beautiful example of, of how the cascade works.
2: You want your third question now? Oh, yes, please. What changes have happened in the last 30 years or so since the book came out? Uh, I've highlighted uh, three. Um, it is true that uh, even by the time the book was produced, uh, the 1970s was being seen as the decade of counter-urbanisation because by the end of the 1980s, things had started moving back again. Uh, There was a slowdown in the net distribution down the urban hierarchy, and uh, big cities were making a comeback. Uh, And in fact, London's population uh, started turning around uh, from decline to growth uh, in about 1987, I think it was. And obviously, it took a while for it to get back to its previous level, but uh, that's when the change occurred. So by the time the book coming out, uh, the decade of counter-organization was over. Uh, we have seen some return to it in subsequent times. Uh, in America, in particular, it was noted in the uh, 1990s, particularly the later 1990s, that the, the rural and non-metropolitan areas were gaining migrants again uh, from internal migration within the country. Um, but, uh, uh, and that signals the fact that there have been fluctuations over time Um, Some of these fluctuations reflect economic business cycles uh, so that uh, just generally population movement occurs more rapidly, actually in a period of prosperity and economic boom uh, than it does in a period of economic recession. People tend to hunker down in economic recessions and particularly in terms of the housing market uh, that always operates more strongly uh, in an economic boom period and it's both a cause and effect of people moving around more. Um, so we have seen cycles in this, um, and it is the case that uh, we still have uh, quite strong flows out of uh, big cities, well, out of London now, we're really talking about um, continuing, continuing now. Uh, in a boom, there's more jobs everywhere, house building is, uh, is going on, and and usually it's a house price ripple. It's, the process starts off in London and house prices go up in London. People start moving out uh, to get uh, uh, cheaper, and more, cheaper accommodation and more space. That pushes up house prices in the suburban areas. And then uh, the next lot of people have to move further to, uh, to get into the, uh, uh, the available and the cheaper housing. So that, that has a knock-on effect right through, say, the south south of England. Uh, during the time of London's uh, national economic recovery, so uh, uh, you you do get cycles in in this, and uh, we'll come back to Covid later perhaps, but uh, uh, we can obviously we had three months of uh, uh, four months of lockdown where people were told not to move house, so that will had an immediate effect. Uh, yes. maybe maybe there's some bounce back since then. Uh, so that's fluctuations, are so fluctuations. The big player, the big change, though, is globalization, what's happened in the last uh, uh, 30 years. Um, it's led to renewed growth of large cities like London, uh, the growth of financial and business services, which really, really pushed on uh, and particularly concentrated in the places with the largest agglomeration economies, the places where you have the greatest opportunity to have face-to-face meetings and uh, Uh, keeping up with uh, what's going on uh, through uh, meeting in pubs and all the things that seem to have closed recently. And this can even be at the expense of uh, the next smaller cities. Um, Part of my research recently has been on uh, what we call second-order cities. Um, These are uh, places like Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, and Newcastle here, where I am. And this growth of London has taken place at the expense of these uh, other large cities. Um, There's not enough new growth in these other second order cities to compensate for the major effects of deindustrialization since the uh, the 1970s, early 80s. And that's let alone uh, the fate of the smaller cities and towns. Uh, the ones that have uh, sort of more recently become known as left behind places. Uh, They've they've really lost out, not just because of uh, the loss of uh, their mining activities in many parts of of England, uh, but also because of uh, cutbacks in manufacturing and uh, people leaving for the the bright city lights, uh, in a sense. The rural has partly uh, sidestepped this problem because uh, Retirement migration has continued, tourism has continued, uh, but the traditional rural economy has suffered, uh, cutbacks in agriculture and mining, the branch plants have basically gone. uh, um, They've gone overseas, they've been offshore, uh, maybe coming back uh, in due course, but uh, uh, they they disappeared from rural areas uh, over this 30-year period. And the rural areas have been stripped of infrastructure. You know, there was a great boost for it in the 70s and 80s, as I talked about. Um, But uh, all things health, education, uh, retail has become much more centralized in larger settlements, uh, main towns and and cities. uh, So that the sort of deeper rural areas have uh, been stripped of all these sources. Schools have been closing down and so on. And they're at the end of a queue for new infrastructure. So we hear every day about the problems of uh, people living in rural areas, getting any access to uh, internet and so on. And 4G and 5G seem to be uh, mirages that will never, never sort of get close to them, despite government promises. And then finally, uh, under this heading, the general slowdown in residential mobility. Um, this has been noted in America for 40 years now, and uh, in Britain, uh, our research has shown that people are moving house, home less frequently than they used to uh, for a whole series of, uh, of factors, uh, especially locally. Uh, but it does affect uh, movement between uh, places and across the urban hierarchy as well. So uh, that, that's a third factor. It'd be interesting to do a link
1: to that the paper that you were you're talking a little bit about there. It fits very much to South Yorkshire here, where I taught, um, the mining communities that uh, we bust in from ooh, five or six different villages and bus duty at our school was an absolute nightmare at the end of the day because there'd be ten double decker buses coming in to take students to all these various different mining villages. All of them disappeared. Well, the, the the industry disappeared within what two years, um, yes. and so as you've described there, that that fits exactly to for a case study in South Yorkshire where I am.
2: And uh, also, the government has just realized that uh, they've been neglecting further education for years and years now, and it's really been cut back. And that t- used to provide uh, um, a lot of the local lifeblood for smaller uh, well, towns rather than cities. Um, and the whole shift of uh, the higher edu- well, the, the, the tertiary education system into higher education rather than further education, expanding the number of people going to Uh, universities up to the 50% target that uh, I think it was New Labour set uh, 20 years ago, Um, that has boosted the growth of the uh, major regional cities that have one or more universities in each one, Um, but it's really shrunk the opportunities available locally for those people living in smaller cities and towns. And uh, the government has just started realizing that they need to put much more money into further education. Mm -hmm. We probably have uh, too many graduates uh, around at the moment for the type of uh, jobs that graduates would normally uh, aspire to. And there's a real need for more technical training, uh, professional uh, development, and uh, uh, which is uh, what the polytechnics, uh, as they were before 1992, uh, we're doing, and the technical Colleges before that.
1: Yes, and the FE Colleges too, which we used to link with. Um, that's really interesting. Underpinning all of this, really, um, is is migration. But if if I talked about migration um, to most people without their geography heads on, they'd be thinking about migration from country to country. But yeah. here, we're talking about. Uh, within country migration. So it's, uh, it's internal or, or domestic migration. So I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the impacts of these internal population movements. That again, this, this comes straight from an exam board, the wording, this is from Edexcel, significant internal movement of people within the UK has created uneven demographic and cultural patterns. And teachers would need to unpick that. For their students. And I think the students' first misconception would be about what they see as migration in the first place, because that's what they're faced with from the media all the time.
2: Well, you make a very important point there, first of all, uh, in relation to uh, contrasting what most people think of as migration uh, with the uh, uh, movements taking place within the UK. Even the Office for National Statistics has fallen into this trap. Every quarter, it produces a Migration statistics quarterly report, and it's entirely devoted to international movements uh, affecting the UK. Uh, there's no mention at all of movements within the UK. Um, so, But, but these, are, these are traditionally more important. Uh, they have, as international migration to this country in net terms has grown over the last 20 years, obviously it, uh, uh, it has uh, taken a lot of attention, And of course, it does also affect internal migration patterns because uh, most of the immigration, the net immigration, people uh, arriving in this country uh, and contributing to the population are contributing to the population of London in particular and some of the other uh, larger cities as well and uh, creating quite a lot of pressure on the housing market. And possibly taking uh, quite a few jobs uh, that otherwise uh, nationals uh, would be taking instead. And so, one of the uh, big changes over the last 30 years is the almost complete disappearance of the north south migration of working age people um, because. The jobs in London, and it basically is a, a north-south migration into London and some of the other dynamic centers around London, uh, so many of those jobs have been taken by, since 2004 by East Europeans and, uh, by, in general, by migrants from, from other parts of the world as well. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the data from 2001, there is no net migration from the north of England into the south of England. That's a, a big change that has uh, that's taken place. I say net migration because it doesn't, as you say, you have to split up your uh, people into different types of people. And there still is a, a very large movement of young adults uh, out of the uh, rest of the country into London in particular. Um, now, many of these, uh, in a sense, will be returning home because they're, they're students who moved out to, to London for university and are moving back. But there are also lots of other people that, uh, uh, if you like, are homegrown in the rest of the country who are moving into London for the first time for jobs. And so uh, there's a big net gain uh, made by London of young working age people from uh, sort of well, graduate age, uh, 22 to 25 years old, that sort, of, uh, that sort of age. But for nearly every other age group is net out migration across the greater London area boundary. Um, and that's uh, not just retired people, but it's also middle and older working age people and their families where to the extent that they've already had their children before they depart. But many, of course, will be moving out of London um, in order to start a family and to move from uh, a small, expensive uh, accommodation to more spacious accommodation, which is suitable for raising a family in and an area which uh, is suitable for raising a family and in, in terms of access to, to schools and all other facilities and away from the congestion and dangers of the large city. Mm. So uh, Dick Whittington uh, still survives, uh, still movements into, uh, in, into London by, by younger people. And this is uh, what uh, Tony Fielding, uh, 30 years ago, again, 30 years ago, called the escalator effect. uh, He called it the regional escalator effect, uh, but it really was a London escalator effect. Um, The way in which he saw younger people, and at that time it wasn't just graduates, it was uh, a whole range of people, school leavers, moving to London because they thought that they'd do better there. They'd get a better job, and more importantly, they'd have stronger promotion prospects and actually go higher. So in many of the regional cities the jobs only go up to a certain ceiling and then all the, the top jobs are in london so if they move to london they have a chance to go through all the top jobs so the escalator they they moved to london from the rest of the country they stepped onto the escalator for uh he reckoned for for their careers but uh, uh in many cases it is only for uh the first few years of their careers and then uh, particularly when they get to family-rearing age, they, they move out. But certainly they, they will have moved out by retirement age. And so there was this escalator. They come into London, ride the escalator, step off the escalator later in their careers and move back out of London. Mm. So that, that that's, uh, divides you up into uh, age groups anyway. Of course, uh, uh, these days you've got uh, many other dimensions of diversity in the population. You've already got better off people and worse off people. You've also got, with the immigration you were talking about, uh, you've got uh, ethnic minority people as well as uh, 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 British white, as they call them, on census forms. Uh, and so there's are extra dimensions that affect uh, uh, migration within the country. And The more, going back to the original point, the more that uh, there's international migration coming into places like London, the more you would expect net out migration from Places like London to the rest of the country because of the pressure on housing and, and jobs and so on.
1: I, I thought I might ask you about that. What What's the impact that uh, migrations had in changing socio demographic profile of British cities? How, how How would you see that?
2: Well, I think it's particularly evident in in rural, the more rural end of the spectrum uh, in a country like ours, which has very strict controls on building in more rural areas, as well as a green belts around the cities, um, it is actually only the more privileged people that can uh, easily make that move into uh, uh, the deeper countryside because the, the cost of the, uh, the housing uh, is, is so much uh, higher than it used to be in rural areas. And as planning controls have uh, continued to get more strict even in rural areas, uh, so the social profile of the, the people arriving from the cities um, has been rising so it's quite a uh, quite a, a sharp distinction uh, between who leaves and who who stays whether they want to stay or whether they uh, can't uh, manage to uh, leave because of the cost of the whole process um, so what happens is that uh, cities uh, become, Well, in a sense, they they could become younger. I mean, London is reinforced by the uh, people arriving uh, after graduation, so that keeps the city younger. Um, But um, beyond that, it will be that much poorer. And, of course, you do have uh, uh, spots within cities which are are highly deprived. And according to the work of Danny Dorling and uh, others, uh, they've become... uh, uh, they, 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 they're more it's the same places that were deprived a hundred years ago. The very, great fixity about the uh, places that once, once were called sort of sink areas in cities. And uh, they, 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 even with uh, gentrification and so on, uh, replacing some of these in more accessible and desirable locations. Uh, there has been a widening of the, uh, the social divide within cities. And Danny Dawling's own work has, uh, has highlighted the uh, differences in life expectancy. Uh, between different uh, uh, neighbourhoods of cities, so, you know, ten to fifteen years difference in life expectancy in some neighborhoods and others. It's uh, it's it's, uh, it's it's quite shocking in, in that sense.
1: He's done he a very interesting piece on a, a bus journey in Sheffield. I can't remember the number, <laughs> I should have looked it up. I can't remember the number of the bus now, but it's 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 exactly that. The life expectancy if you get off at one stop is something like 15 years different from if you sit on the bus for a little while and then get off i don't think it's down in Pittsmore, but it's a it's a journey in sheffield anyway
2: and it's it's a well, we have the same in newcastle it wasn't danny that did it but I, i'm not sure who it did but we have the metro uh light rail system in newcastle and uh, so they've attached life expectancies uh, to each of the neighborhoods around each station and uh, as you travel through uh uh, through, through uh, Tyneside, on the Tyneside, tyne weir metro, uh, you're going from place to place. It's got widely varying life expectancy.
1: I think there's an interesting A-level project in there for students to do. I'm sure some of them already have. Um, I'm going to flit a little bit now, because you talked about urban escalators, but I've also read about you writing about inter-regional elevators as well.
2: So That's getting a bit technical. um, um <laughs> One of the uh, criticisms being leveled at uh, at Fielding's original idea is that uh, the upward mobility that people moving from the rest of the UK to London uh, benefit from uh, doesn't all come from riding the escalator after they arrive. Um, They uh, quite often will actually get promotion uh, from the job that they had before they moved as they arrive in London. In fact, uh, more and more migration these days is not the Dick Whittington sort. It's not speculative migration of people moving to London uh, and then looking for a job. These are people who have gone to London for an interview, being given a job, and it's a better job than they were in before. And uh, so um, immediately, uh, as they move, they have uh, improved uh, jobs. Uh, improve salary, etc., And that's what we call elevator, um, that they, they rise up immediately, they, they move. Uh, whereas uh, the escalator idea is that people stay in an area and progress over time uh, while they're living in that area. So there's two things. Uh, elevator effect, if you get uh, promotion in your move into London, uh, escalator effect, if you... Uh, 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 pr- um, get career progression, uh, better salary and jobs, and so on, uh, while you are in London before you perhaps decide to uh, abandon ship. Perhaps you burn out, uh, uh, <laughs> or you start to want to start a family, or you may stay as long as you till, you till you want to retire. Yeah.
1: Well, you said that was going to be complicated, but even I understood that, so I, I think that was very clear. <laughs> Thank you very much. And. Um, to- should we be talking about cities or city regions and what's the difference? I, I'm not entirely sure with that one. So we talk about economic dynamism and uh, Britain's largest city region. So what, what does, that, that, does that really mean?
2: Well, city region uh, refers to the sort of functional area that is a single settlement, um, whereas the city is often just the core of that area, and uh, in normal parlance, the city is defined by the administrative area uh, of the city. So in Newcastle's case here, the the city is actually defined very narrowly, just the the main city, and then there's the rest of the Tyneside conurbation around, which makes up its city region. Um, And uh, a lot of people will commute, a lot of the outer areas will be suburban areas to the the city, and a lot of people will be commuting into uh, the the jobs in the the heart of the city itself. And so when you talk about functional economic areas and you have economic analysis, it's important to see the whole area as a single entity and produce statistics uh, for that area. Um, So that's, uh, in a sense, the difference between city and city region. Uh, The city is only part of a a wider urban area and it needs to be planned uh, in the context of that urban area it uh, you can't sort of well you can envisage a situation where the city and the surrounding if you like the surrounding county that's outside the city are planned by different people with different purposes in mind and don't talk to each other uh, but it doesn't produce a very efficient outcome and so When there was local government uh, reorganization in the wind in the 70s now, and going back to that, or even in the late 60s, Redcliffe Redcliffe-Maud produced a report saying that uh, uh, we should uh, um, plan our whole country with a new set of uh, uh, areas that weren't the counties but were were city regions. Um, In the end, the government didn't accept that fully, but it did set up the metropolitan counties like Tyne and Weir and West Midlands and uh, Greater Manchester, Liverpool City region, which are obviously still talked about today because they have come back in. And uh, some of them at least uh, have a mayor for the whole area who's meant to coordinate the uh, actions, both uh, short term for COVID or whatever, and longer term in terms of strategic planning for the whole economic unit uh, that makes up the the city. Some people would like to call it the daily urban system, because if you uh, look at where people move around uh, in terms of the city and the wider area, and you can do this, uh, a lot of mobile phone companies will release information about people traveling in these areas. Traditionally, we use census data on commuting to, uh, to identify these movements. Um, you find that these are pretty integrated places.
1: I do like the idea of using mobile phones. How easy is that data to get hold of? Is that something that A-level
2: students could do? No, no. You have oh. to have special arrangements.
1: <laughs> okay. I thought that might be might be more complicated than that.
2: Uh, the Office for of National Statistics may, is trying to move into the area where it's trying to get mm-hmm. rid of censuses and uh, use much more administrative and survey data, uh, which... Uh, uh, they reckon would be cheaper and, and would be available much more uh, frequently rather than just every 10 years, which the census is every 10 years. Uh, I don't know if they've got much into looking at commercial data, but uh, certainly administrative data from public sector and the various departments of health and tax and all the rest of it, they're, they're trying to bring all that together to produce a sort of uh, replacement for the census uh, so with the two thousand and twenty-one census next March maybe the uh, maybe the last one.
1: Well, that'd be a really interesting shift. Um, I know a lot of teachers use the census data. It depends on how difficult the data will be to to get when we move to a new system for for teachers to use.
2: Well, it it should be pretty easy to get. There's some some, some data around now. The problem with some of the data, in particular survey data, is that you don't get very good statistics on local areas. They're much better at regional statistics and national statistics because the sample levels are quite low. And so even the labor force survey and the associated uh, annual population survey are relatively small and uh, the uh, confidence limits even for local authority level data are are quite high. So um, you you can't get really down to what a lot of people like to look at in in terms of individual neighbourhoods. Super output areas,
1: perhaps, or even smaller than that?
2: Well, um, yes, uh, quite a bit will be available at middle-level super output areas, but uh, uh, that is uh, 15,000 people on average, so it's quite a large neighbourhood. Lower super output areas... Um, are about 1500 people. So um, individual output areas would be very nice. That's about uh, 500 people. But uh, and census data obviously does come out for those. And uh, uh, they're also useful at this lower level for uh, if you've got, if you want specially defined areas um, uh, rather than the wards or, or, or local authority boundaries, because you can aggregate small areas up into the sorts of areas that you actually want to study yourself. And uh, so it's really important to try and have a a sort of really fine geographical grain of uh, of, of data on people's socioeconomic circumstances and so on.
1: Okay, I'm going to ask a big question now, because we've danced around the elephant in the room, and I know you're not going to be able to answer this with anything other than speculations, but what do you think the longer term effects of COVID on cities and on internal migration might be?
2: Uh, I could say that I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I could say that it's not the only elephant in the room. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with Brexit? Uh, we've just got no idea what impact that's going to have on international migration. Uh, to the, the, the talk, uh, the whole one of the main bases for Brexit was to uh, limit international immigration to this country. Um, is that actually going to happen? Will it happen anyway because the economy is in such a bad state over the next few years that uh, people won't want to come here anyway? Uh, that would certainly have major impacts on internal migration patterns because of what I said previously about the, the linkage between the two, particularly the, the sort of throughput through London with the large numbers arriving from overseas in London and large numbers moving out of London to the surrounding counties and beyond. You've probably seen quite a bit of hype in the newspapers saying that all this home working, uh, all the lockdown where people have been confined to flats without gardens and uh, has led to a great push and a great desire for getting out of the big cities uh, into smaller cities and rural areas where you can uh, afford uh, a house with a decent amount of space and an extra study or two for uh both partners, to uh, to be home working, as is the case of my daughter, um, and also to to have space yes around you on your gardens uh, and uh, parks and uh, even access easily uh, to get out into countryside, which uh, lockdown didn't for- really forbid. You could jump in your car and go for a walk in the middle of nowhere. Um, so there's been a lot of hype in the newspapers uh, of estate agents reporting a, a big boost of interest to uh, people living in cities to uh, buy houses in surrounding surrounding areas um i think the jury its too soon to tell the jury is out still um, this could just be the the catch-up phase from the period of uh, four months of lockdown where people weren't allowed to move house and so uh uh uh, they're trying to trying to make the moves that they, they they were frustrated in not being able to move before. In the future though, I mean if cities economies uh, if a large part of the hospitality industry doesn't recover in large cities, um, that is going to be a negative effect which will reinforce uh, home working. Um, it's a sort of uh, I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg in that in that situation. But uh, it does seem that uh, a lot of employers are realizing the benefits of, uh, of home working, even though there is also evidence that uh, it's not such an efficient process for them, even in the short term. And as other evidence saying that uh, their long-term dynamism of their firms may suffer from the lack of face-to-face contact of their employees if they continue home working. Uh, but standing back from all that, uh, Yes, I don't know. It depends on a lot of things. And uh, hopefully things will become clearer over the next few years. But uh, I I tend to be a pessimist, which usually turns out to be defined as realist uh, in my experience. Uh, And uh, I think it's going to be over the next five or 10 years, uh, the cities are going to have uh, quite a difficult time of it. Um, But it may not lead to all that much extra or different migration, it may actually uh, lead to more people choosing to stay put because either they uh, they don't want to uh, uh, move or they can't move. Uh, they're sort of trapped in, uh, in in the places we're at because uh, no one wants to buy their, uh, given that so many people own their own homes these days, they may have uh, trouble actually uh, selling their home at a price which they can then used to afford to uh, buy a house elsewhere. So uh, I'm. we've had some discussions with the Greater London Authority yesterday. They're producing their 2019-based uh, population projections uh, next month, and they wanted to know the answer to this question as well. <laughs> so I, uh, I said, well, I think you should just uh, carry on, project for what's happened over the last 10 years and only when you've got some real solid evidence of any change in behaviour, uh, should you start altering the assumptions going into your modelling of uh, migration within the UK.
1: Well, that doesn't sound too pessimistic at all to me. I think that sounds <laughs> that sounds, as you said, perfectly realistic. That that's been absolutely fascinating. That that I, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, I hope there's nothing I've left out that you're burning to say. Ooh,
2: nope, nope, nothing this. on my list. I've mentioned Brexit and that's it.
1: Well, we'll hold you to what you've said about your predictions for the future. And we'll play this again. We'll get together and play this again in five years' time and uh, see, see whether your predictions were bang on the nail or not. And um, I think we should, have, we should have 50p each on it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank okay. you very, very much. That's been Thank it. you very much, John. Bye-bye. Hi. It's Mark from the GA membership team. This week we have a special offer for you. The top-spec geography series is designed for post-16 students and provides an easy-to-follow approach based on the latest research on a wide variety of human and physical geography topics. These cutting-edge resources help bridge the gap between A-level and university and are the perfect accompaniment to A-level geography. Titles include Migration and Global Governance and Water and Carbon Cycles. And you can now get 15% off any of the six titles available using the code TOPSPEC15. That's all capital letters, followed by one five. TOPSPEC15. Visit the GA shop on our website to purchase your copy today. TOPSPEC15.